The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I wanted to combine these two kind of disparate ideas of acceptance and revenge and sort of meld them together even through my own prism of my style and what I like to write about and the way I like to write. I think I've been accused more than once of being in love with similes, and I I accept that uh, accusation wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it became more than I intended, but not so much that I hope is not heavy-handed, because at the end of the day, it's still a book, it's still entertainment, it's still a story. And uh, I say this often, nobody wants a 300-page sermon, but you can still take a little bit of honey and help the medicine go down. Greetings, scribes, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and prosperity per usual. Recent New York Times bestseller and award-winning neo-noir novelist S.A. Cosby returned to chat about his creative process, cinematic heroes, and fantasy casting his new revenge tale, Razorblade Tears. S.A. is also an Anthony Award-winning short story writer for Best Short Story 2019, and his short fiction has appeared in numerous anthologies and magazines. His lauded best-selling novel Blacktop Wasteland was Amazon's number one mystery and thriller of the year and number three best book overall for 2020, a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, winner of the LA Times Book Award for Mystery or Thrillers, and a Goodreads Choice Award semifinalist. His latest, Razorblade Tears, hits the New York Times bestseller list for the week of July 25th this year at number 10 and is described by ALA Booklist as a powerful blend of pulsing action, sensitive and subtle character interaction, and uncompromising but highly nuanced reflection on racism and homophobia. Number one New York Times bestselling author Michael Connolly said of the book, cuts right to the heart of the most important questions of our times. S.A. Cosby is not only the future of crime fiction, but of any fiction. In this file, S.A. and I discussed how he defines country noir, the genesis of the larger societal themes in his work, why he always starts with the problem and a stream of consciousness synopsis first, how finding his way into the plot is like finding his way into a locked house, the great American literary legacy of odd couples and his hot take on Quentin Tarantino's directing. Stay calm and write on. 
And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. And leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. Okay, we are rolling once again on The Writer Files, and I am privileged and honored today to be joined by a returning guest. I have the honorable, (laughs) best-selling neo-noir novelist, S.A. Cosby. What's going on, man? How are you surviving over there these days? Oh, man. Uh, Last couple days have been crazy. Uh, The book has come out, and um, my latest, and it's been an incredibly... uh, gratifying and heartwarming outpouring of support, not just for my uh, fellow writers, but from readers and, and uh, people in the industry. Um, it's just been an incredible uh, moment. You know, if you told me seven years ago when I started, decided to be a full-time writer, that uh, any of this would be happening, I would probably suggest you uh, see a neurologist and have your head examined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like um, it's been, you described it the last time we spoke as kind of an embarrassment of riches. So, uh, you know, given the reception of black tap wasteland, you know, becoming going on to become a bestseller and, uh, hitting New York times, notable New York times book review editor's choice, and then winning the LA times book award. Congratulations on all of that. Uh, how are you feeling now? How are you feeling today? <laughs> I think even uh, more embarrassed. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, I, I I think if you're a writer or an artist and you start to become accustomed to accolades, I think you stagnate. I think, or as my mom would have said, you start believing your own hype. I think you stagnate as an artist. And so I am continuously, perpetually, surprised and honored that people connect with my work. Um, it makes the long hours and all the research and the questionable uh, Google search histories uh, worth it. The questionable Google search histories. I like it. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. It seems like you've almost outgrown the writer files uh, in your in your uh, renown. But uh, thanks for taking the time. Yeah. So, you know, I I think as a returning guest, I kind of want to, you know, talk to you about uh, obviously Razorblade Tears, which is the latest. um, And as of, you know, this recording, it will be out there in the world. And and so you are on virtual tour right now, I I take it. And and kind of, uh, yeah, how, how, how does it feel now? Are you still doing kind of like a lot of hybrid stuff? Oh, yeah. I think that's going to be not just for me, not just for me, but I think going forward for the industry, I think the hybrid model is just going to be more cost efficient. Um, That's not to say I don't like having in-person events and I look forward to having in-person events. I actually had one yesterday at uh, my local, um, my favorite local bookstore, uh, Chop Suey Books in Richmond, Virginia. We had a little event on the sidewalk, kind of in the open air and uh, people came yeah. by, stopped by and picked up some books and uh, some friends stopped by that I hadn't seen in like, you know, 16 months. And I'm almost 100% fully vaxxed. I got my first dose. So, and, and everybody that I saw had already beaten me to the punch. So it was nice to actually have a little bit of human human interaction again. It is different uh, than with Blacktop, where Blacktop was almost, because you know, necessitated by the pandemic. 
was almost 100% virtual. I didn't do any in almost any in-store events. Um, and so, and even when I did, I did one, but even then it was also a chop chop. So you weren't able to get close to people. We had like a six foot social hmm. distancing barrier and the books were like um, handed off to me by one of the employees at Chop Suey who was wearing, you know, surgical gloves. And it was just all very sterile. Um, yesterday was a lot different. We still take precautions, you know, um, but it just felt different. It just feels different. I think for me, I like interacting with people. I'm, I'm a rare writer, I think, where I'm an extrovert and I love talking to people. And so the opportunity to actually talk mm-hmm. to people in person was and it was just invigorating. I had one lady whose husband is, is a big fan and he couldn't be there. So she put him on FaceTime. So even that was really interesting. So it's just, again, as a writer, it, it, it is incredibly um, moving for me that people actually take the time out of their day to stop by. So that was that was awesome. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. It's it's pretty pretty great to see the reception that Razorblade Tears has received. I mean, in comparison to Blacktop Wasteland, it's just it's just uh, incredible. I thought that this Michael Connolly blurb was pretty great. He said, um, "As a Cosby is not only the future of crime fiction, but of any fiction." Where the words are strong, the characters are strong, and the story has a resonance that cuts right to the heart of most important questions of our time. So let's kind of go to the origins of Razorblade Tears because, you know, last time we talked, um, we talked quite a bit about kind of your neo-noir origins and kind of the cinematic amalgamation that you put together. And you described it as kind of Defiant Ones meets Rolling Thunder, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's a pretty apt description, I think. Um, You know, as far as like my influences and where it came from, there's a couple of different uh, pieces to the to the foundation there. Um, One, I love cinema. I love, you know, I love, you know, the the French New Wave, but I also love, you know, like avant garde cinema. But I'm also an unabashed fan of the the Grindhouse B-movie cinema, especially the uh, the mid to late seventies. And, um, Razorblade Tears started out in my head as sort of an homage to those, you know, uh, tough, you know, country noir movies that came out in that time period. It seemed like, you know, the late seventies filmmakers discovered that there was like, you know, 25 or 30 more States other than California and New York. And so they started filming (laughs) movies in Louisiana and Florida and Georgia and North Carolina, South Carolina and so on and so forth. And so, Movies like, you know, like uh, The Defiant Ones or uh, Rolling Thunder, which is one of my, anybody listening, Rolling Thunder is one of the great revenge movies of all time. It's also Tommy Lee Jones's first, I think his first film role um, with William Devane in that movie. Um, But anyway, um, so that's how it started. I kind of had this image of this, you know, sepia toned uh, B movie in my head about two fathers seeking justice, seeking revenge. Um, but what happened was it actually grew from that and became a little bit more than that. It, it, you know, it, it, I had a friend who um, came out to his parents rather late in life and um, it didn't it didn't go well. It wasn't pleasant. And, uh, and uh, they, they weren't very um, accepting of him. Uh, and so as we talked it's sort of that's that idea of what he was going through seeped into my mind and seeped its way into the story. And so I 
came up or I guess I came up with an idea. I wanted to combine these two kind of disparate ideas of acceptance and revenge and sort of meld them together either through my own prism of my style and what I like to write about and the way I like to write. I think I've been accused more than once of being in love with similes. And I, I accept that uh, accusation wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it became more than I intended, but not so much that I hope is not heavy handed because at the end of the day, it's still a book. It's still entertainment. It's still a story. And uh, I say this often, nobody wants a 300 page sermon, but you can still take a little bit of honey and, and help the medicine go down. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I think, can't we credit your mom with that? Uh, yeah, but she, I found out that she got that from, uh, she got that from Mary Poppins, but she used to say it all the time. And it, <laughs> it, it still bears, has a lot of resonance with me. I, I believe that. I think that's, I think that's what the best books do, you know? Um, yeah. The best books entertain, but they also make you think and they make you think in a way that's not, um, you know, obtuse or, uh, too, uh, too condescending. And that's, that's always the high bar that I'm trying to reach. Yeah, yeah. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, um, congrats on the work and the reception. We won't do any spoilers here, but I think I thought kind of how book page described it was very apt and you know they just kind of described it as a mission driven novel where you're again you're deconstructing the cultural plague of homophobia you know both in larger society and in the black community and and obviously this um southern noir is a is a very cinematic backdrop for that and in, in the way that you describe it and the way that you write it but uh yeah, I mean, I don't know. I want to talk maybe a little bit more about your your writing 
process, you know, kind of okay. um, when you come to the, to the screen or the page, you know, and you come with an idea um, like this one, and then it kind of grows into something different. Yeah. How are you, how are you finding, or what do you, what are you finding is your most productive process for, from Genesis to kind of. Yeah. Um, for me, it always starts with what I like to call the problem. You know, what, what is, what, 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 what is the problem that a character of mine is facing? And I like to sort of figure out the problem and the solution. And then I tell a story around it. And so for me, like, for instance, Razor Late Tears, the problem is, you know, these two fathers and their sons have been murdered. And what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that entail for them? How does that affect them both, you know, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically? Um, where, do, where do they go? What do they do? You know, uh, and so what I do for myself is I sit down and I write myself a very stream of consciousness synopsis. It's very much a, it's very much a, a Finnegan's Wake, but just for me, nobody else ever, ever has to suffer through it. And, um, and so it's it's me telling myself the story. And like I said, it's very stream of conscious. I just sit down and I start typing. I open up a Google Doc and I'll title it. Uh, and then I'll start telling myself the story. These two fathers, their sons are murdered. They're both ex-cons. They're men of violence. They've, they, they've killed people. They've murdered people. They've done their time. And now they're members of society. And are they willing to, you know, and, and so I tell myself the story that they're going to, they're willing to, you know, risk their lives, their freedom to avenge their sons. And then I just tell my story, myself a story beat by beat by beat. Um, and then once I finish the synopsis, which a lot of times is very different from what the book actually looks like. But once I finish the synopsis, then I can start the book because I can't start a book until I can tell myself the story. I can't tell you the story until I can entertain myself. And then once I can entertain myself, I can tell someone else's story. A lot of times for me, a book, finding a way into a book is like finding my way into a locked house and I, I've misplaced my keys. And so I have to figure out a way to get in the story. And just for me, it's the synopsis. It's this little synopsis that, like I said, never sees the light of day. For a lot of other people, it's a different process. It's some people are total pantsers. Some people are outliners. Um, I try to avoid outlining because I hate it. But at the same time, I, I, I'm not a complete 100% pantser because I do like to have some structure um, with this, to see where the story goes. But yeah, it all starts yeah. with me telling myself the story. Yeah, you've obviously have a, a vast array of influences and, you know, kind of going back to this great legacy of uh, American letters, uh, especially. And you've talked about kind of turning some of these tropes on, on their head. You know, I wanted to ask about the relationship between Ike and Buddy and the, and the, this kind of odd couple teaming. <laughs> you know, they're not that different, but there is this this uh, great legacy of, you know, from 48 Hours to Lethal Weapon, you know, teaming up. Yeah. The, the kind of the, uh, the crazy white guy <laughs> who has a drug problem <laughs> with, with the like... With a really methodical African American, you know, <laughs> talk about that. You take a story like like Lethal Weapon. You take a story like Lethal Weapon, yeah. where Danny Glover, uh, Roger Murtaugh is his character. Is you know he he's close to retirement, uh, and 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 he's you know he's too old for this s as he says. And then you've got you know Martin <laughs> Riggs, who's this broken 
man, this this damaged, crazy person, but with an incredible skill set. And what I always saw from movies like like you were talking about Forty Eight Hours or whatever, or 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 a Lethal Weapon or what have you. For me, as an African American writer, a lot of times those movies had an imbalance of 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 power. And what I mean is not that, say, for instance, Lethal Weapon, not that Martin Riggs is more powerful than Roger Murtaugh, but because of his characterization, he's he's more interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you know, Roger plays a straight man to Martin's wild character. Um, that that imbalance is a little bit reversed in 48 hours. But then thematically, Nick Nolte's character has the power over uh, Eddie Murphy's Reggie Valentine because he's the cop and Reggie's the criminal. And so for me, when I start down to write uh, Reasonably Tears, I wanted to equalize that power. I wanted to remove that imbalance. Um, I didn't want mm-hmm. Ike to be more interesting than Buddy Lee, and I didn't want Buddy Lee to be more interesting than Ike. I really wanted them to be equals because, like you said, they are more alike than they, either one of them would care to admit. And my, Ike and Buddy Lee are mm-hmm. really, you know, I didn't, I'll say I did this intentionally, but not with intent. Um, they're a microcosm of the South. You know, a, a lot of times yeah. I have more in common sometimes with a white man or a white woman from the South than I do with someone from any other part of the country. I can go to any person in my hometown, anybody in North Carolina, South Carolina, anywhere throughout the Bible Belt, and I can ask them what is Scrapple. I can ask them what are hog moths. I can ask, I can talk to them <laughs> about, I, I can ask them, what did your church do for homecoming? And I don't have to explain it because there's this shared, this understanding, this cultural relevance that is specific and germane to the South. And so a lot of times those same individuals don't want to see that. They don't want to acknowledge the sameness, the compatibility, so to speak, um, that they share with um, members of the black community. And so I wanted to take two characters that are from the same area, from the same town, who whose sons are married and they still have never really crossed paths and force them, literally put them in a truck in a sealed room and make them talk. And, you know, using the, you know, the, the impetus of the fact that they're on a revenge mission that also forces them Mm -hmm. to confront their prejudices about each other, their misunderstandings. Um, And so again, it was, it was interesting to take that trope of the, you know, the odd couple, the, you know, the, the, the guys, they just can't get along. Are, are, are they ever going to be able to put their interests <laughs> aside and kind of deconstruct it a little bit and flip it on his head? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talked about Grindhouse and the, that um, genre and I couldn't help but th- compare, you know, your um, dialogue with some of Quentin Tarantino's dialogue <laughs> and, it's interesting to me because he uses that trope quite a bit. He uses the odd couple trope. You know, I would think of obviously Pulp Fiction, but then you see it in you know even Jackie Brown and and um, up through Django, right? Mm-hmm. Where you've got about that as you talk about that balance of power, but then it gets um, almost mitigated or balanced out by a dialogue that becomes very human, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Quentin, I think, here's a, here's a scorching hot take for you. Um, <laughs> I am <laughs> still a hot, I'm still a huge fan of his dialogue and his writing. But I think as I've re, um, re-experienced his, his work as an adult, I think the difference between Quentin and some other folks who are doing similar work or using that similar trope is that Quentin 
likes the iconography of the trope. He likes the visual of it. He likes the actual visual. Mm-hmm. Black guy, the white guy. The, the, you know, the, this odd couple, can they get along? Um, he likes the 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 cultural pop culture zeitgeist of the dialogue as opposed to really investigating the characters because a lot of times and that's just my opinion a lot of times his direction invalidates the uh, autonomy of the characters he's created like for instance Hmm. everybody loves I'm included loves Samuel Jackson's final speech in Pulp Fiction where he's got the gun on Tim Roth and he's saying, mm-hmm. you know, you know, he says that great line, you know, the truth is you're the weak and I'm the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo, <laughs> I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. And then you juxtapose this this walking, talking personification of bad assery with this person who has a shuck and jive for Jimmy, his buddy, and who talks about his coffee. And so I think. For me, as I've re, re, re-experienced these movies as an adult, I still love the dialogue. I still think he's one of the great writers of dialogue in film history. But I wonder sometimes, does he, uh, and in that, negate, like I said, the autonomy and the authenticity of his characters by his direction? That's just my opinion. You know, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I, but I, I, I think the idea that you mentioned is dialogue can be so visceral you know conversations can be violent discussions can be physical Mm -hmm. almost and i love creating dialogue that gives the reader that feeling i i'm i love having conversations in my work where characters are cutting each other off like a real conversation where you know i you know i can be accused of using dash marks too much but I'm really trying to replicate how a real conversation sounds. That being said, yeah, I intentionally give my characters monologues sometimes. I intentionally have them, uh, you know, uh, step out into the center of the stage to give us a little way to quote, to use a Shakespearean term, because that's part of writing too. I'm a a firm believer that a book doesn't have to be 100% realistic. Real life is real enough. When I go to a book, I want an... I want the personification of reality. I want it in, I want the, I want a, a, an impression of reality, but if I wanted to, you know, ha- have an actual conversation with somebody, I would go and, and talk to somebody for an hour. When I go into a book, I want my characters, I want mm-hmm. the characters to uh, create a new type of environment for me to in, experience the story. And so, yeah, I, there are times when my characters will step, you know, like metaphorically step off the side of the stage and say something that I'm trying to say or I want them to say. Um, and I think, again, dialogue-driven stories can do that in a way that I think other types of, of medium or stories can't. And so in that respect, I definitely admire um, like writers like Quentin Tarantino. David Mamet is another one that does that to an incredible extent. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, the dialogue, the verbal jousting becomes almost as um, intimidating as a punch to the face. Um, and I'm definitely trying to uh, reach that level, um, trying to create that sense of, you know, uh, a rhetorical combat, so to speak, in my writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just thought for for one quick second to di- diverge to 
stage stuff. Did you ever see True West? Oh yeah, I love True West. Like, uh, Sam Shepard. Yeah, I love True West. Yeah, that's, I thought of that yeah. because um, I do love Mammoth also. And then I thought from stage to to page, that's pretty interesting stuff. Um, I could pick your brain more about it. I do want to mention. I know you got to go. Uh, Razorblade Tears. S.A. Cosby's latest, um, we'll link to in the show notes, a provocative, fast-paced uh, story of bloody retribution, heartfelt change, maybe even redemption. And, and um, I thought Washington Post had a very nice um, blurb. They said, uh, S.A. Cosby's new crime novel is provocative, violent, beautiful, and moving too. And Elmore Leonard, wherever you are, you've got competition. <laughs> I, yeah, um, hey. I, I, I read that and I had, to, I, had to, I had to sit down. I mean, you know, there there are three people. Right. There are three writers for me personally that are on the Mount Rushmore of crime writing. Um, Elmore Leonard, Walter Mosley, and Dennis Lane. When you talk about dialogue, when you talk about characters, yeah. when you talk about motivation, when you talk about um plot, those are the high bars for me. Those are the those are the uh the the vaunted elders. And, you know, two of them have given me blurs for a book. And one of them is no, unfortunately no longer with us. So to get a blur from Dennis Lane and get a blur from Walter Mosley and then have someone compare me to Elmore Leonard, it's the trifecta of what I thought I wanted to achieve as a writer. You know, it, it, I, it doesn't get any better than that. Stunning, stunning work. Thank you very much for taking the time. Before we uh, sign off here, you're on Twitter, you're on <laughs> Facebook. I'll link to all those things. Yep. Um, any news on, uh, any news on, film or small screen adaptations of your work? Yeah, real quick. Uh, both uh, Blacktop Wasteland and Raised by Tears have been optioned uh, for film. The script or a, a working script for Blacktop Wasteland has been completed by the great Virgil Williams, the co-writer of Mudbound, which was an Oscar-nominated film uh, a couple years ago on Netflix. Uh, the script for Raised by Tears is being written as we speak. And like everyone else, I fantasy uh, cast it in my head when I was writing it. I don't know if those are the people that will end up in a possible film, but uh, my uh, imp- inspirations for both Buddy Lee and Ike uh, were, um, Buddy Lee was inspired by the great Sam Elliott. I actually make reference to that a couple times in the book. And uh, Ike was inspired by um, the great, great underrated actor, uh, Delroy Lindo, just was most recently seen in The Five Bloods. So those who I was envisioning, everybody else can envision whoever they want. I've heard all kinds of names <laughs> bandied about, and I'm, I don't disagree with any of them. They all sound like wonderful choices. So, Oh, man. That's good casting. Um, I can see both iconic, iconic actors now in those parts, and now I won't be able to unsee that as I, uh, <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> as I read more of the book. But hey, <laughs> congrats. Please come back and talk with us again. Do uh, have safe uh, journeys and be they virtual or otherwise. Uh, enjoy the rest of your book tour, my friend. Thank you so much for having me back, man. I would love to come back again. It's been such a blast. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.